a very good morning to you. I'm Howard Feldman. This is the Sunday Synthesis Podcast with me, Howard Feldman, and Dr. Anton Marburg, pulmonologist and COVID frontline worker. It is June the 27th, and uh, we have had news that the Delta variant is alive and well in South Africa. We are expecting a meeting with the president this evening where we will be told of greater restrictions. What does this all mean? What should we be worrying about? Dr. Anton Marburg, good morning. You obviously talking to us from home. That's good news today. How are you feeling? Good morning. Um, definitely much more rest than I was last weekend when I was working. I've had the weekend off. Unfortunately, my partners are bearing the brunt of the, the whole pandemic, but I've had a bit of time to get a bit of R&R, thank God. So we're currently sitting on 181,559,144 cases worldwide with 3.9 million deaths and 166 million cases resolved. The United States has 34 million cases with 619,000 deaths. India has 30 million cases with 395,000 deaths. And South Africa has 1,913,861 cases with 59,778 deaths and 17,958 new cases in the last 24 hours, a 25.6 test positivity rate, with 11,777 of those numbers in Gauteng, which has a test positivity rate of greater than 32%, which means one in three people in Gauteng are testing positive. There are 6,462 patients in hospital in Gauteng, with 1,236 in ICU and 654 ventilators. All right. So it sounds horrible, but there's a lot of numbers there. Can we try and break this down and understand what this actually means? Let's talk about your hospital. How many people are in hospital with COVID? How does this compare to the second wave and the first wave? Give us, give so, us a sense yeah, of what it I looks mean, like it, on the ground. If I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. It's chaos. It's anarchy. It's devastation. It's trenches. It's a war zone at the hospital. We've currently got about 131 patients who are COVID positive in the hospital. That's much more than we had during the first and the second wave. The majority of our wards are now COVID wards. I'd say about 85 to 90% of the hospital is now COVID with the other wards being in, in inverted commas green wards, but with the potential that they can also spread to becoming red wards. We're using theater to put COVID patients at the moment. We don't have enough space in casualty. We've got ambulances lining up outside the casualty to try and bring patients. In fact, it's gotten so bad that some of the hospitals, some of the private hospitals in Gauteng are now transferring their ICU patients to KwaZulu-Natal and to Cape Town because we don't have wow. capacity or space for ICU patients. So that's where we're at at the moment. And that's definitely comparable in many ways to what it was like in Italy and what it was like to other countries overseas during this wave. And uh, what's the situation like in terms of ventilators as well as oxygen, either for the hospital or home use? At this point, uh, thank God we still have enough oxygen use. Um, you know, our hospitals definitely try to cater for that, knowing that this would be happening, not knowing obviously the extent of it, but knowing that there would be a third wave, knowing they would need to have enough oxygen. And so far, we're managing with oxygen requirements. Ventilators are still a problem. And it's not only the ventilators are the problem, but you need ICU staff to man the ventilators. You need ICU nurses. You need trained people to understand how the ventilators work. So you can have basically as many ventilators as you want, but if you don't have enough staff, you don't have enough trained professionals, mm. it's kind of mm. useless. And that's why they're also starting to transfer patients to other hospitals and other provinces to try and help decrease the burden and the load of what we're going through. 
very, very scary indeed. What's happening? I mean, you're talking obviously about the private hospitals. What's happening in government? No, government hospitals are overflowing at the seams. They've got at any time 60 to 80 patients sitting in casualty in chairs, either with oxygen or waiting for oxygen. Um, we're talking about Chris Harney Barragrand. We're talking about the main hospitals. We're talking about Helen Joseph Hospital. You know, of course, due to the fact that Charles Makwekwe Hospital is closed and not having any patients there, Nazareth is not operating officially. So those hospitals are bursting at the seams. Okay, so very, very serious all round. Let's, let's try and understand as well. We've received a tremendous amount of questions and thank you everybody for, for your questions as always. What I'm trying to do as, as I do when we do get so many questions is group them into, the, into common areas of, of, uh, of queries. Unsurprisingly, there's a lot of questions around this so-called Delta variant. Now, just to be clear, the Beta variant is the UK variant. No, sorry, the Alpha variant is the UK. The Beta is our own homegrown one, um, you know, it's proudly South African. And the Delta is the Indian, the so-called Indian version. This is the one that we are starting to hear much more about. Is that correct? Yeah, so as you correctly say when you corrected yourself, the oh, alpha is the beta-117, which is the UK variant. The beta is the 1351, which is South African homegrown um, variant. And the proudly South African. And the delta is the B1617, the gamma being the Brazilian variant, which we don't really hear much about. Now, no, why Brazilians is this delta variant? Thing. I mean, I think in the northern suburbs, Brazilians have think that. Maybe, know. maybe. But why is this uh, Delta variant so so big and such a hype? Well, we saw what it did in, in India, how it devastated the Indian population. We also know, and if we look at it sort of on a practical level, the Delta variant is basically an improved version of the Alpha variant. So it's an up-and-coming variant which has been basically modified and improved due to mutations. And there are two important mutations on the spark protein Mainly, the one is at what we call the furin cleavage site, which is important for what they call the fitness of the virus in the airways. And that basically means there's an increased amount of virus which is produced in infective people, which allows them to expel more virus and allows them to produce more virus. And at this point, we're seeing a higher transmissibility, a much higher transmissibility of the Delta variant with regards to the first wave where we saw our first variant. It's about 100% or 100 times more potent or more transmissible than that variant and much more transmissible than our own homegrown variant. So this double mutation, does that make it more dangerous? So it's not a double mutation. It's, it's different mutations. There's more, more, more important sort of mutations that we actually don't know how to neutralize the antibodies from those mutations. And that makes it much more transmissible. And because it's more transmissible, more people are being infected. Now, you've got to understand that when we say that, it's in a country where there's a minimal amount of vaccinations having been done. Therefore, you're going to get a lot more people being sicker Therefore, you're going to be a lot more people needing to go into hospital and therefore a lot more sicker people in hospital needing much longer duration of stay and much more intense um, needs for, for treatment and for actually trying to get them better. So is the issue the transmissibility or the transmissibility as well as the severity? Well, I think it's a bit of both. I think the major issue is the transmissibility because it's so much more transmissible in people who are especially not vaccinated. 
that is a big issue. And then due to the fact that it stays around for a longer period of time, in other words, people are staying in hospital much longer because the different variant, it also adds to the whole picture. Break that down into practical terms, in terms of transmissibility, because I saw an article, or I saw a comment by an Australian that way, where he said that, that if you had to be in a room with somebody for 15 minutes with the, one of the original COVID strains, now it's 15 seconds. I, I, I don't know really what, what that means, but is there a way to try and understand what greater transmissibility actually yeah, means? Yeah, there's a, it's a great analogy that basically it's saying that during the first wave and part of the second wave, we would use this sort of elastic rule of saying that if you're in a room with some 15 minutes and you weren't properly protected, you'd probably be, you have to ask out of quarantine. Now there's no time duration. It's if you're in a room, whether it's one second, two seconds or 15 minutes, you need to isolate. That's the transmissibility. That's how transmissible this new variant of the virus is. It is extremely transmissible. It is highly infectious. It's pushed up our R number, which is the number which we know that how it infects other people dramatically. And we're seeing a major increase in this. So it's a highly transmissible, I meaning it's a highly infectious type of virus and variant that spreads much easier to people. That said, if people are both wearing masks and they're in the same room for a short period, that should be okay, right? Well, you've got to understand, you know, that's not the, the, the blanket rule because if you've got windows closed and doors closed and you're in the same room wearing masks, that's not acceptable. If you've got windows open, if you socially distance, if you're away from each other, it's better but human nature is that people tend to like touch their mask, touch their eyes, touch their face. So at the end of the day, they're going to have to isolate or quarantine because mm -hmm. they're not following the rules because they don't realize that they actually are sort of touching and breaking that social contact and interaction. How do we know which of the, because we've spoken about this many times and the general understanding was that it's the beta variant that we're seeing in the second wave. Has it changed or is there, or is this a new thing that's coming on the back of this third wave? Can you try and explain that so to me? The research is in the Kozun Natal called the CRISPR. It's a whole, it's mm. a whole uh, sort of research development uh, protocol that they actually looked at the genomic sequencing of the actual virus. In other words, if you go for a test today, They'll take you, they'll test you, they'll do your PCR swab, and they'll pick up that your SARS-CoV-2 is positive. In okay. order to further delineate which one it is, it's got to go undergo genomic testing. That's not done on every single patient. So you've got to have a second swab to look at that to actually see which variant you're dealing with. Now, they've done this in, in KwaZulu-Natal, and they're doing it in other provinces, and they're seeing a marked increase in the Delta variant. We're assuming that it's the same in, in Gauteng because we've got such a high number, because the transmissibility is high, they are still doing studies to, to see this, but it's assumed that the majority now is the Delta variant on top of our Beta variant. Well, a number of weeks ago, we spoke about the fact that the, that the Delta variant is a real problem, but we weren't doing anything to curtail travel from India. Is this now a result of that? has to be. I mean, it's in 85 countries all over the world. So it's not only us. I'd, I'd love to say it's our fault only, but it's not only us. It's all over the world. In fact, so much so that Israel has now gone back to um, enforcing people to wear masks indoors, whereas 10 days ago they stopped that. And this is due to the Delta variant. So the Delta variant is a worldwide problem. 
Right. And uh, let's just talk about the, the symptoms. Do they differ between the Delta and the Beta variants? Essentially, no. Essentially, the symptoms are the same. You still get people with fever. You still get people with loss of taste. You still get people with diarrhea, with, with coughing, with shortness of breath. The, the major difference we're seeing now is, as we said, it's, it's a high transmissibility and people are sicker for longer durations. So they need to stay in hospital for longer. And in fact, people who are, let's say, day 10 in hospital, who would have been in the second wave sort of out of the woods, are now seen to be developing lung consequences at a later stage and need to go into mm. ventilation at a later stage than they did during the first and second waves. Yeah, we have spoken about that. It was something that you started picking up that that towards the end of this period, people were getting yeah. sicker again when you thought that they were doing okay. That's correct. The, I mean, we were definitely seeing that. If, if somebody has had the beta variant, are they susceptible to the delta? Yes. There's no, you're not, you're not sort of protected from the Delta variant if you've had the Beta variant. The two don't sort of match each other. All right. And uh, let's just talk about vaccines because that's obviously a very, very serious issue and lots and lots of questions around this in terms of the Pfizer vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson and, and the discarded AstraZeneca's. So the Pfizer vaccine is still extremely effective against the Delta variant. It may be about 5 to 10% less effective than it's against the Beta variant, but it's still extremely effective. And not enough studies have been done, but what's thought is that Johnson Johnson is also still extremely effective, especially against severe cases and hospitalization and death. So it definitely is, and people mustn't panic, there definitely is protection from the Pfizer and the Johnson Johnson. Whereas we talk about other vaccines such as the, the Sinovac, the Chinese vaccine, the, the Sputnik, I still wouldn't allow anybody I know, I wouldn't advise anybody I know to use those vaccines. Um, there's a lot of sort of talk about them. There's a lot about, Political there's pressure. actually no transparency. There's no transparency with mm. the Russian vaccine. There's no transparency with the, the, the Chinese vaccine. In fact, there's a study that came out that showed people who had vaccinated large amounts, like in the Seychelles and Mongolia with the Chinese vaccine are now being hit hard with the Delta variant. So be careful. Yeah. Yeah, lots of questions around that as well. But at the, but uh, it, we, we're very blessed that Sapra is not buckling to political pressure and hopefully will, will, will follow their protocols as they should. 100%. Although it does worry me that our vice president has gone on a, a medical trip to, to Russia. Mm, maybe couldn't find a bed here. The, uh, the, 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 a lot of people asking as well, if they've had the Johnson & Johnson, is it going to be likely that they're going to require a Pfizer booster? So I think we've said that many times before, and I think the answer to that will be yes. But mm. you've also got to understand the ethics behind it. There are people that haven't had one Pfizer yet. And if you had one Johnson Johnson, you have to have the humanity and the ethics to say that people who haven't had the, the first Pfizer or need to be first in line to get that. And then hopefully down the line, you can get a booster with a Pfizer. But it's a good idea to get a booster once you've had the Johnson Johnson hmm. to work with that immunogenicity and to work with the strengthening of your immune response to the virus. 
you just didn't answer around the AstraZeneca, assuming that that we can eventually get those back in South Africa. In so the studies in a small amount of people have shown that the AstraZeneca does actually work very well with a booster from the Pfizer as well, and is also effective against the Delta variant. Mm, the pity of it all. What are you seeing in terms of patients at this stage who have had either both Pfizer's or one Johnson and Johnson? So interesting enough, we haven't seen, or I'm not seeing any patients who've had both Pfizer's coming in. We That's have seen predominantly people who've had the Pfizer first vaccine within the first two weeks of having the vaccine then coming into hospital. And once again, we don't believe that's from the actual vaccine. Mm -hmm. We believe that's from them standing in the lines with multiple people, no social distancing, being on top of each other related to that. Obviously people are getting sick and people are in hospital, um, but the majority of people are doing well having had one type of vaccine or another. Okay, so at this stage, the what you're seeing from people that have had the vaccines, either Johnson or Johnson or Pfizer, is very is very good. There's nothing that. Are doing better than people that haven't had the vaccine. Let's put it that way. Right, right. I'm not sure if that's an answer that gives me any comfort. No, that, that is a very is a very important because you've got to understand that the people who haven't had any sort of vaccination are not doing well at all. We've had young people in our age of 27, 37, 39 who've had severe consequences of not being vaccinated and people with comorbidities, people without comorbidities. So those with the vaccination would definitely have done far better. Okay. Uh, there's, uh, Samantha wants to know, anecdotally, there seems to have been a lot of false, <coughs> excuse me, PCR, and I'm fine, by the way, definitely fine. You've noticed that that cough hardly reared its ugly head. I definitely made it through the last week. Uh, without without COVID. The, um, anecdotally, there seems to be, and thank you everybody for your concern, by the way, because I did get a lot of very, very um, concerned people messaging me. Anecdotally, there seems to be a lot of false PCR negatives lately. Personally, I know several people have had hectic symptoms, tested negatives two times, and then the third time were positive. We hear a lot of this. Yeah, it's, it's got to do with the yield and the uptake of the virus. I think the important thing to understand there is that the PCR is an important tool in helping us to diagnose if a person is positive. But if you are symptomatic or you're in a house with people that have got symptoms or are COVID positive and your test does come back negative, it's not a get out of jail free. It doesn't mean necessarily that you are going to be negative. You could test positive two or three days later. It depends on your cycle threshold and your virus mm -hmm. buildup and your virus transmission at that stage to see if it will be positive or not. And that's why two or three days later, it might only test positive at that point. But if the symptoms are there and you've got enough sort of factors that say contact. that you should be in quarantine, mm. rather just stay in quarantine and mm. isolate. So Laura, Laura is asking, and I think it's, a, it's an important question. A lot of people are, are, are a bit confused around this. Uh, between the vaccines, let's assume someone's having the Pfizer, they have the first vaccine and then they get COVID. How long should they wait until they get the second vaccine. So I think we've got to understand that what we've always said is that if you've had COVID and you get a vaccine, you must use that vaccine as a booster. In other words, you don't need another vaccine. And I think we will call it the same way that if you've had the first vaccine and then you get, then you get COVID, you've got a booster. This is your booster to antibodies. And the general sort of rule is that people who've had a vaccination plus who've had 
COVID have a far higher antibody output than people who've had, let's say, just two vaccines per se. So you're far better protected having had one vaccine and having had COVID. COVID. That's not going to say that you should go out and try to get yourself infected because we cannot predict this virus. We cannot predict who's going to get extremely ill from the virus. And we can't predict that there'll be beds available for you in hospital. Right. So, so the, 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 the answer to that is really uh, you can relax because you've actually got probably the best combination. Well, I wouldn't say relax. Relax is the wrong word to use here. No, it, I don't more, mean relax like in terms using, of behavior. Yeah. Relax in terms yeah. of whether you have you don't need to rush out and get another 30 days or 90 days. That, that, that's really what I mean. Um, yeah. Because you actually are pretty well covered. So. Correct. Right, I'm, I'm with you on, on that. There's also a tremendous amount of talk, and, and I've had people messaging me that they've seen it themselves, around the fact that there are vaccines being thrown away at the end of the day at some of the vaccination sites. Have you heard this? Um, do you know anything about it? I know that, that the vaccination rollout isn't your field, but I'm just interested if this is something that you're also hearing. So look, I, I haven't heard this. I did hear this at the beginning of the vaccine rollout um, when we were in, say, in February and March when they were sort of, they didn't have enough people to vaccinate, but I'm not hearing this at this point in time. If it is happening, it's a, a devastating to hear. It's terrible because we need to vaccinate as many people as possible and there are people desperate to be vaccinated. As I said, we need multiple, as many people vaccinated as possible, young, old, middle-aged, especially those with comorbidities, we have to get them vaccinated. If anybody does know of very specific cases and sites where this is happening, let me know. Let us know. And, we'll, and we'll just post it on social media so people can go there and get vaccinated because, as you yeah. say, we'd rather not waste the vaccines and have them thrown away. As long as they're prepared to do that because some of the other anecdotal stories that we're hearing or certainly that people are sending me is that, that they didn't have enough people, but because you didn't fit into that criteria of who was allowed to be vaccinated, they wouldn't do it. So it sounds like I, a sad story. Really, really it, terrible story. It, that it really does. Uh, Karen wants to know: Is antibody body infusion available for COVID patients in South Africa, and does it work? What about co uh, uh, convalescent plasma? I know we had spoken about this. Yeah, so con yeah. convalescent plasma has been thrown out um, a, a while ago. It definitely doesn't help. Oh dear. So that's a bit. Uh, that's a bit of a pity. Do you think we should be going to to level five in South Africa? So that's a tough question. I'll give you two answers to that. There's the medical answer, and then there's the non-medical answer. Medical answer, we should be in level six lockdown in Gauteng, never mind level five lockdown. The non-medical answer is we cannot afford to go into level five lockdown from a social economic point of view, but we have to do something dramatic. And what does dramatic mean? It's obviously we know that for, without a doubt, he's going to stop the sale of alcohol tonight. There's no doubt about it because that's always the first thing that gets done. Mm -hmm. But what needs to be done is closing up interprovincial borders. What needs to be done is putting people in a two-week quarantine or closing down the schools. All the schools should be closed down. Now, there's no, we know schools are safe, but we also know that teachers and staff members and other people also go to schools. So they may be safe for the children, but are they safe for the staff members and other people and the parents who are taking the kids to school, et cetera, and people who are traveling to school in, in large buses or, or mini buses, that type of thing. So it should be deemed tonight that they should be closing all the schools in Gauteng. You know, I'm going to speak Gauteng um, most importantly mm -hmm. because this is where the surge and this is where the epicenter of the virus is at the moment. 
What he's going to do and he's going to buckle to pressure, we don't know. But something dramatic has to be done tonight. And if something dramatic is not done, then we ourselves have to take it upon ourselves to actually put ourselves in a sort of a semi-two-week lockdown. And yes, two weeks, not the ultimate answer, but it's something that can help sort of curtail the spread and help bring the numbers down just a little bit so that we can make more provisions to fight this virus and make more provisions to get the numbers down in hospitals and give the medical staff a chance to actually turn the numbers over. You know, what we're seeing in hospital is as soon as an ICU bed is available, before that person is wheeled out of the bed, the next person is already being wheeled in. We are in a dramatic, devastating sort of um, place at the moment in hospitals, and we need everyone's help with this. Yeah, it's a very, very serious, very, very serious indeed. Are we seeing more kids with severe symptoms at this stage? So we're seeing more kids with symptoms, but not more severe symptoms. There's definitely, as we said uh, many times before, we're seeing more families being affected, whereas in the first wave and most of the second wave, there's only one spouse or one person in the family, and now we're seeing multiple members of families being infected. Another question around the vaccine and symptoms. Um, Ilan is uh, asking this for an older person. I had the coronavirus in July of last year, so that would have been the first uh, the first variant, and uh, have lately had the vaccine. I had quite a lot of side effects from the first Pfizer vaccine and would prefer not to have the second one if it's not necessary. Do I need to go for the second one? So that's a very important question because, you know, with all the studies and, and everything going out there, and with the, as little as we know about this virus and the antibodies, the majority of people say that you do not have protection after six to eight months after having had your first infection. So if you're talking about July last year, that's more than a year. So you would say that you've had your first vaccine, you definitely need a second vaccine now. It's not even a question. And knowing that you still can get severe symptoms after the, the second vaccination, which is very common. In fact, in the States, they found that a lot of people got a lot more symptoms after the second vaccination than they did after the first vaccination. But you just got to take it slow and take it easy and know that these are good things that will actually help you get over the actual virus itself. I know you don't want to answer this because we've done it a thousand times before, but I can't not ask because every second person in absolute desperation to do something to feel a little bit more in control is taking ivermectin. Give yeah. me your thoughts, your experience on ivermectin. Look, our experience is not favorable. We've had multiple people in us who have been taking ivermectin that have died. Now, I'm not saying it's from the ivermectin that they've died, but I'm saying that it hasn't helped. All of the anecdotal work shows that the ivermectin doesn't make a long-term benefit. And actually, one of the problems with ivermectin we're seeing is that what it might do due to its so-called anti-inflammatory response is it might mask the symptoms of the virus at the beginning and make you appear to be well, but you're actually unwell. And what that means is it can drop your inflammation markers like your CRP and your interleukin-6 so that if you're tested by your doctor and these are low and that you're, you're sick, they actually delay the starting of your corticosteroids, which is then a big problem because you don't get life-saving medication because your markers appear to be normalized by this masked effect from the ivermectin. So we're still saying definitively no to ivermectin. I know people are desperate, but don't let desperate situations make you do desperate things. 
And all of these studies, I mean, I don't read them, but I'm being sent studies that I, that I, I mean, I could print four books on the amount of people about, about, about the amount of information I've sent on ivermectin. Is it, it's just not accepted amongst your... Yeah, your they're not public. randomized controlled trials. They're not accepted amongst our colleagues. You know, these are, are studies that have just shown no benefit in any other patient. As I've said multiple times, we are looking for the, for the, for the magic bullet. We're looking for the silver lining. We're looking for, we would grab it, you know, the same way we grabbed corticosteroids, the same way we've grabbed the vaccinations, the same way we grabbed drugs like tocilizumab, the interleukin-6 monoclonal antibody. We would grab it. You know, none of us are lobbying against ivermectin. It just doesn't work. There's no proof. If there's proof that it works and we can show it and it's deemed, there's no brainer. It will be used, but there's no proof. Matthew Despite says, the volumes and volumes of, of journal articles you're seeing from people. Um, Matthew wants to know, my parents are in Mozambique. They're trying to avoid coming back to Gauteng until the third wave has calmed down. But my dad is almost due for his second dose of Pfizer vaccine. Does he have to get the second dose within the 42 days? Or can he wait in Mozambique a little bit longer for the wave to calm down before he comes back? It's an interesting question. Look, look  42 days is preferable. There's no doubt. You know, initially it was 21 days and now it's 42 days. You know, uh, especially um, um, especially if over the age of 60, you've got comorbidities, rather get it within that 42-day period than wait because this could last two weeks still, this could last four weeks. Um, obviously, we've said before that if something happens and you cannot get after 42 days, you still should get it at a later stage, but it's preferable to get it within 42 days. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, that th- th- those, are, those are really a lot of the questions. The How do you tell people... I mean, we've done this every week. We've done this every week since March, since March 2020. And the message has been pretty much the same every week. Just be careful, social distance, stay home if you can. We're now in the middle of a horrific, horrific wave. I don't want to use the word rules. Maybe it's guidelines. Maybe it's how do we get this across to people that for the next few weeks we just need to stay home. Look, without, without any other way, begging, pleading, crying, you know, and showing pictures of what's going on in ICU, showing pictures of ambulances outside the casualties, showing people requiring beds, showing people in the wards that cannot get an ICU bed, that we do not and are, and not, or we are not able to ventilate these people and having to explain to family members that your family member is going to die because there's no ventilator for them. This is in a private hospital, not only a public hospital. Need we say more? You know, People need to now realize that the buck stops with them. They've got to take the bull by the horns. The onus is on people. It's no longer on you and me. It's no longer on the government. The onus is on people now to stand up and be counted and realize that they have the control of the situation. They have to make it work. It's time to stop going to church. It's time to stop going to the synagogue. It's time to stop going to the mosques. It's time to stop any social gatherings. It's time to stay at home and be safe. How far into the third wave are we? Any signs of a turning yet? We estimating that the peak should be in the next week or two, hopefully. I mean, we've all seen the graphs of the upward spark of the of the peak of, or of the trend going upwards way above the first and the second wave. And as uh, 
Prof Shabir Mori says, with eventuality, after everything goes up, it all has to come down. So it will come down, please God, but we don't know when that's going to be. And that will be hopefully in the next week or two, hopefully we'll be seeing that we've hit the peak and we'll be starting to slow down on the numbers. But as we know, we cannot predict the course of this virus. Mm. And um, yeah, I guess that is the good news is that if it goes up, it does have to come down. Let's hope that it does so sooner than later. Is there any good news or is that it? The good news is that we're almost at the peak and the peak will come down, please God. And we just got to look after each other and we've got to save each other and we've got to be good to each other. We've got to realize that, you know, being harsh and locking down is the necessity that we need now to protect each other. We have to, have to, have to protect each other because each and every one of us knows someone who has died or someone who is an RCU and it's upon us now to make the right decision. That's where we leave it. I'm Howard Feldman. This has been the Sunday Synthesis Podcast with me, Howard Feldman, and of course, Dr. Anton Myberg. Please don't forget to subscribe below. Send us your questions. Be safe, be kind, and God bless.